I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute here. And we very much wanted to put together this event on the spending review. All right, it was two weeks ago. Uh, but the general theme of how government should manage spending and performance. And this is something, I mean, as I, I think a lot of you who come to the Institute regularly will know, that we spend quite a bit of time on. We have a performance tracker annual report, which we uh, conceived of about three years ago, that looks at uh, money into public services and then what comes out the other end, and indeed what's happened to demand uh, in the meantime. And Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist, has put uh, a great deal of insight and thought into that with, the, with, the, with, the, with our team. And Martin Wheatley, who's been with us uh, with a, a background in Treasury and local government and uh, elsewhere, has been working uh, with me a year ago on our report on the spending review, how we thought the government ought to run the next spending review, I guess acknowledging at the time that it might be, but hoping it wouldn't be as small a one as it, it turned out to be, um, and has now produced a report. Uh, have you got a copy, Martin, yeah. that we can wave? Yeah. Um, out today on, indeed, the Treasury's role in managing, thank you, uh, managing uh, performance and public spending. And we have Michael Barber, so Michael Barber with us tonight, and I'm absolutely delighted about that. Thank you for joining us, Michael. As many, in, in, indeed, I suspect all of you will know, Michael uh, is not only now chair of the Office for Students, uh, but conceived of the, the public value framework, which he set out in his How to Run a Government book. It's upstairs on not only my desk, but many in the IFG. Um, and is discussing that with the Treasury and is the founder of uh, Delivery Associates, which took his ideas about delivering uh, government and took those out not only through the UK, but through many other countries. Michael's going to kick off um, this evening and just talk to us a bit about the problem that he set out to solve, if I can put it that way, in conceiving of the public value framework. And uh, Martin is going to pick up some of those ideas and he challenge them um, from, from um, uh, his report out today, uh, saying what we at the IFG make of that. And Gemma is going to take us through some thoughts that we might have about what the spending review 13 days ago did or indeed didn't do. And then we are going to kick that around a bit. And uh, I'm looking forward to quite a lot of questions. Um, and I know there will be. I was going to say at least some, at least one from the conversations on Twitter earlier today. Uh, by conversations, I mean eight-part uh, uh, accounts. We'll, we'll come on to that later. Anyway, my, uh, Michael, very uh, warm welcome, and thank you for coming. And um, tell us about the, the yeah, framework. I will. Thank, thank, thank you very much. And it's, it's, it's nice, to, nice to be here. And I um, welcome the report that you've put out today that, that Martin is the, the lead author of. I think it's an important contribution to the discussion. Um, and so I'll, I'll, be, I'll try and be quite brief and just um, make a few points and then we can go into the discussion. I know Adrian and I have had a, Adrian Brown here, a uh, former colleague of mine, and uh, we've met many times and done many things together and we have a bit of debate about this. So we, we, can, we can get into uh, the, the depths of the debate, which is, which is really, really fundamentally important. So it's, it's worth just getting a couple of big facts on the table. So one thing, one is, Britain spends roughly um, uh, between eight and 900 billion pounds every year. That's quite a lot of money. It's 40% of GDP. Um, if you think about it, regardless of whether the politicians are in town or uh, the parliament's in town, we're spending 
somewhere between two and three billion pounds every single day uh, as a country that's of public money. That's uh, not government's money, it's your money, it's my money, it's taxpayers' money. Um, and so a debate about how to get the best value for that seems pretty important. Um, and um, there are different ways of thinking about that. Um, the public value framework was commissioned from the Treasury uh, by the Chief Secretary at that time. It was David Gork, but all his successors have supported this work as well, uh, as have the, uh, the top Treasury officials. And the idea was to, uh, as they began, they were just beginning and now they're clearly coming out of austerity, to move from just thinking about controlling the inputs, which is effectively where public um, expenditure debates had got to, to start thinking more broadly about well, what, what, what do we want for our money. And by controlling the inputs, <coughs> you mean just making yeah. sure that departments and the government overall actually stuck to the... Stuck to the spending type, yeah. 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 yeah, and, and yeah. kept grip on yeah. it and reduced... Which Britain the has been very good at. Yes. So, and, and, and exactly, Bromin, that's my next point. We should, so, but if you look at the last 20 years um, and, and a global perspective on what's happened in Britain, in the Blair years, when Adrian and I were in the delivery unit, uh, Antonio Connor is at the back there, we, were, um, we became very well known globally for delivering to outcomes, for setting targets, for uh, uh, introducing management uh, approaches, uh, driving through delivery of some very, very substantially transformative targets like the waiting time target in health, reducing crime by 30%, uh, even uh, making the trains run on time. Um, and that became a widely admired approach around the world for being uh, bold, quite vigorous, um, and driven, making a different use of a prime minister's power, basically. We didn't know it was an innovation at the time, but we learned that afterwards. But then, then in the Cameron era, when the financial crisis had hit and there was uh, a need to get a grip on the nation's debt, Britain became quite well known around the world, in fact very well known around the world, for being very vigorous at cutting into the, the debt. Um, and we, know, we now all use the word austerity, but, um, and not everybody liked austerity, of course. Uh, but it was actually, um, I think I'd summarise it as crude but effective. Uh, in the way it got a grip on that. And depending on your politics, you can think that was um, important and good, or you can think it was important and not so good, but it was important for sure. Uh, you're not to divert you, but <coughs> we now have David Cameron saying he should have done more earlier. Yeah. So um, yeah. a third school, if you like. Yeah, but more on... On the cut. Yes. And that, but, I mean, actually, but, you know, that's... that's um, to, to have done more earlier would have been really tough given uh, how tough they were and given how seen from outside Britain was uh, remarkably tough. Anyway, that's, a, that's another thing. Um, the, and, and so the public value frame was commissioned by the Treasury because they, they then began to realise that they lost sight of the outcomes, but Britain had been good at controlling inputs. In a previous decade, it had been good at managing to outcomes. But now the question was, what should you get for your money if you're a taxpayer? What is public value? And we went into that, and I had a small team in the Treasury that worked with me on that. And basically, uh, I'll summarise it very briefly, there, there, there are, you can all look at it on the Treasury website. There are, there are four pillars of public value, we say. One is when you, when you get allocated some money, wherever you are in government or the country, when you get allocated some public money, what is your medium-term goal? What are you going to do with the money? What, what, are you going to improve schools? Are you going to teach children? Are you going to 
uh, run nice healthcare, whatever it is. But the money is for something. It's not just for nothing. It's not just to, to, th to think. So the first pillar is about medium-term goals. The second pillar says, is the money at the inputs, are they, uh, are they being spent for the things they're intended in a fair and transparent way? So the money that's allocated for, let's take police, is it going through the system in a clear, fair, transparent way? Does everybody know how it gets to the front line? Uh, is the money being spent for what it was intended for, or is it being diverted? Or is it not getting to the front line, or is it being wasted on bureaucracy? So that's the second one. Um, so and there, there, the, the first one is close to what we did in the Blair era. The second one is close to what the Cameron era, Francis Maud, uh, and others thought about. But then we said, looking at the research, we said that's not enough. There, there's other things to think about here. The third. So the third pillar is, how are you? if you're spending public money thinking about your engagement with the user of that money, or the recipient of the service, or the user, or the partner, whatever word you want to use. And also, what about the taxpayer? Does the taxpayer understand why you're spending that, even if they're not a user of your service? Like, you might be, um, you, you might be not have any grandchildren or children, um, and you might use the National Health Service, but never go to a school. But you might be pleased to know that the government is spending some money on schools. Do you understand? why government is spending the money the way it's spending it. And on the part that the user of the service, very many of the services that we provide as a country, or that are provided worldwide, they will be improved if the user really engages. Like a student who goes to university, who really gets into the course and gets inspired and works hard, is going to do better without the government spending any more money, or without the student spending any more. Similarly, a child who, uh, whose parents uh, read, read with the child at home, um, do homework with the child, whatever it is, take them to, to nice museums, that child will probably do better in school without the government spending any more money. That's an active participation. And, and things on public health are clearly, you know, where, where it's about diet and exercise, etc. It's clear that if you don't engage the user, you're not going to get full value. Take mental health, a growing uh, area for public expenditure. You do need to think about how that money is spent in a way that engages the user and isn't just <coughs> uh, providing a service. And then the fourth pillar says, okay, well, you're doing all those three things, but are you also thinking about the long-term health of your institution? You're a head teacher. Are you leaving the school better than you found it? Have you got a good supply of teachers? Are the teachers well-trained? Are they building their skills? You're a permanent secretary of a department. Are you leaving the department better than you found it? So. Pillar one is, are you delivering outcomes? Pillar two is, are you managing inputs fairly and uh, efficiently? Pillar three is, are you engaging the users uh, and uh, building a dialogue about that money with the citizen? And pillar four is stewardship, basically. Are you looking after the institution you're responsible for? So that's basically what the report says. And then it says three things beyond that. One is, all of this requires data. and. There's a bit of a tendency, there has been a bit of a tendency in Whitehall to say, you know, to negotiate with Treasury, say we'd really like this money to do something, and then, oh yes, and we need another budget to have the data to measure it. Well, that, that should be, that's just silly. It, it should be, the data should be a standard. And then once you've got the data, the second thing follows, given that you can now track performance, you should be getting better all the time. There should be what British cycling would call marginal gains. Uh, and then thirdly, in some areas, the Treasury should be expecting a department to innovate radically. How is it going to do that? 
um, and there's different ways of doing it. So that's the basic idea of the report. And it's been adapted. We've piloted it in a few places. Uh, there was a refined version of it published earlier this year. Uh, the Treasury mentioned it in the brief um, one-year spending review we just had, but they're very committed to it for the, for the medium term. I want to take two, two, two other final points uh, and, then, and then stop. One is, it is really important in these um, days of cynicism about politics, parliament, government, uh, not just in this country but around the world, that there's a really rich, worthwhile dialogue with citizens about how we are spending their money. And we need to get better at that. And the framework isn't designed to help that, but it doesn't solve the problem on its own. But there's a huge issue uh, there that is very important, not just for any given government, but for government in general and democracy in general and rule of law in general. And then the last, the, the last point uh, to, uh, is, is there's, a, there's a, a kind of fatuous debate about whether things should be top down or bottom up. This is ludicrous. Any, any major change where you're going to spend a lot of national taxpayers' money, there's bound to be a top-down element. But that doesn't mean it has to be all top-down. And it can't, it, it would be a dereliction of duty for a national government to say, we've put this money out there, we don't know what you're going to spend it on, but that's fine. Come back to us and tell us in three years' time. It's just not, that's never going to happen. And if it did happen, it would be a disaster. So. You, we, we, do, we need to get beyond these false dichotomies of top-down or bottom-up uh, and all of that. And then the, the last thing I'll say is increasingly what I see in government work around the world, in Canada, for example, or Australia, for example, um, is cross-cutting isn't the exception. It's not like there's departmental expenditure and a few cross-cutting items. Cross-cutting is the norm now. So designing budgets needs to take account of that to think about cross-cutting and how that looks at national level and how it looks at place level. So I'll give you one example to finish with. The Food and Farming Commission have just published a report uh, on all the different budget headings we spend to try and change rural agri in agriculture, rural society, all the rest of it. And it's, um, it's a good report. And they're proposing an adaptation of the public value framework, which looks very impressive to me, to get at that. But if you, if you look at the way those payments land in, say, a chunk of Devon or a chunk of Cumbria, you will find that you've got a whole load of budgets coming from the centre to a particular place but not being used for an optimal level, uh, <coughs> an optimal change in that location. And one of the virtues of the public value framework is you can use it for a strand of vertical strand of government money, but you could also use it for all the money that ends up to change agriculture and rural development in Cornwall, for example. And that would give you a whole set of insights. Michael, thanks very much indeed for starting uh, us off on that. I've got quite a lot of questions indeed about which bits you can measure and accountability and so on. Let me just ask you just one thing briefly, which is the role that you think the Treasury has in this. A word I think you haven't mentioned in, uh, yes, in your well, exposition. No, this was all done in collaboration with the, with the, with the mm. Treasury team and, and with the Chief Secretaries successively. Um, mm. And and they presented to the cabinet uh, several cabinets ago. That is, um, but the um, but the, the the treasury the, the, the treasury or the finance ministry in any country has a huge responsibility. First of all, to make sure that public money is raised, mm. and secondly, to ensure that it's spent on things that are 
legitimate and that, that then the money is spent well. And that is the primary purpose of a treasury. Mm. It has macroeconomic uh, roles as well, but, um, mm. uh, but uh, in, in, in the mm. purpose of this debate, it's, that's, that's what it's got to do. And if it does that well, it makes an enormous difference, not just to the economy of the country, mm. but to the ability of citizens to lead fulfilled lives. And so it's a fundamentally important role. Great. Well, look, th 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 thanks for setting us up like that. We'll come, we'll come back to those points. Uh, Martin, what do you make of this? And you've discussed the public value framework quite a bit in this report, um, mainly positively, mm. I think. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, um, I think it's a huge step forward, uh, but it, uh, it, it, it is a big part of the solution, not a complete uh, solution, and no one intervention that government could design would be complete. Um, Starting with the good, and you touched on this, uh, Michael, um, there's, uh, it's above all, a really important sign that the Treasury cares, again, about what happens to the money and what's achieved after uh, a phase in the earlier part of this decade uh, when it seemed uh, interested in the money only. And I had uh, Treasury officials explicitly saying what happened after that was for departments and maybe the Cabinet Office. Now, um, by uh, putting so much emphasis on this, uh, it's saying its conversation with departments needs to concern itself uh, as well with results and whether um, these often uh, rather poorly designed and tangled systems through which public money uh, is turned into action and results are uh, as well designed uh, as uh, possible. Um, I also agree very much uh, in the era we are in with its emphasis on listening to the public on, on what, what the framework calls legitimacy. Uh, and and uh, uh, that you know, seems to me to be uh, a major evolution from the first phase of uh, delivery of which I had some uh, experience uh, back in the Blair era. Um, as a tool for looking at uh, individual programmes, it has enormous strengths. And when I was a spending team leader in, in the Treasury and Gordon Brown and those around him invented PSA targets, it would have been extremely useful. Do you useful. want to say what PSAs are? As well? uh, public managed to service, get this far, this far yeah. without that acronym. Public uh, service agreement targets, which uh, John McDonnell says he may be bringing back. So uh, we'll, we'll see that. So. Um, uh, uh, the starting with the, 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 the first uh, Brown Blair spending review, the idea that you accompany your spending allocations with targets, the, which were laid out in these public service agreements. And being confronted with that as a spending team leader, having something like this uh, would have been uh, enormously valuable. I know from talking to current Treasury officials that they find it enormously valuable as well. I think. Uh, uh, the questions I would raise on the basis of our conversations, especially with public services uh, beyond the, the square mile round here, are three. First of all, um, uh, a, a set of issues about government knowing its limits, or central government knowing its limits, um, being clear uh, about what kinds of issues are amenable to what kinds of uh, intervention. And I think, we'll, uh, as, as you've touched on already, Michael, we'll be talking a bit more about that later. The second is uh, whether it, 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 it gets fully to grips with the extent to which uh, digital not just changes how government may go about doing things, but the whole nature of society within which um, government is trying to intervene. 
And the third is, um, uh, and may, uh, this, this is something I, 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 we, we got a lot of feedback very strongly from uh, away from London, uh, and, and, and I've got some lived experience of, is how making sure that central government is really open to the experience and insight, not just to the public, which is really important, but the people in the middle, the, the, the professionals and uh, public service managers who make things happen. So um, that's, that's the framework in its own terms. Um, the two things it can't do, because it's a tool for looking at programmes, not for looking at the whole of uh, what government does. Um, first is it, 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 uh, it can't achieve prioritisation. And I think one of the things that uh, the government led uh, uh, led very strongly by the Treasury needs to be trying to do is make sure that uh, it has a manageable to-do list, not just because... Um, uh, money will never be limitless, but because actually political attention, uh, the, uh, the, the hours in the day of uh, politicians and, 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 and senior civil servants can never manage to-do lists as long as those that we see uh, in the government's single departmental plans at the moment, uh, departments with you know, 80 or 100 so-called priorities. Um, so um, that, that's, that's an, another thing that's separate from the framework, and I would say in order to make the framework work, um, that the government needs to be paying attention to and the Treasury needs to have a role in. The second is that um, the experience we, 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 we chronicle in the report about the UK, and, um, uh, and um, I know it's true internationally as well, is that government getting good results from spending will only work if there is a very uh, vigorous political ghost in the machine. Um, and uh, uh, whether it's the, the kind of role that Tony Blair uh, played in uh, really animating the processes that you were leading, Michael, or um, more recently some positive stories we picked up about some secretaries of state in uh, uh, post-2017 government uh, here asking very good questions of their department about performance and establishing routines to understand progress. And it's when you have that level of political uh, interest and drive, then um, these, uh, these well-designed uh, uh, technocratic frameworks work. If... Um, if politicians uh, see it as what um, local politicians often call officer bollocks, then it doesn't work. Thank you. On that ringing note, um, no, thanks very much. And again, there's quite a lot of points I'll, I'll, I'll come back to there. Gemma, um, would you pick up on that and also take us to this uh, event, if we can call it an event, um, on, on September the 4th, when the Chancellor uh, delivered a mini micro-spending review? Yeah. So, as you say, we... Two weeks ago, we got the, the one-year 2020-21 spending round. Um, I think if we'd been sitting here a year ago, as Bronwyn and Martin That's were, we when were, they yeah. wrote their report yeah. last year about uh, what they wanted to see from a 2019 spending review, I think we would have been pretty disappointed with what came out two weeks ago. As I say, most departments got a one-year settlement. Um, that means they don't have the long-term certainty to be able to plan their budgets and that how they spend their money most effectively. There were some significant areas that got longer term settlements, notably the NHS and schools. But actually, in a sense, that was bad news for other areas of public spending. By setting long term settlements for those areas, the government has tied its hands on a big chunk 
of public spending without having actually carried out a full wide-ranging spending review to think about what the priorities are across government. And the IFS calculated, I think, something... If you put in the commitments to overseas aid and defence, it's something like two-thirds of day-to-day -day departmental spending has now been pre-committed. Um, so it's a very large chunk of what the government does without having had that full spending round. Um, there was also not a huge amount of focus in the announcements a couple of weeks ago on prevention. Um, there was a lot of announcements on cure, more money for the police, yeah. more money for hospitals. Um, and there wasn't much focus on the issue that uh, both Michael and Martin mentioned about cross-cutting issues across government, Brexit being the obvious. So um, cutting across departments, cutting across the traditional departmental silos. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, having said that, given the circumstances in which those spending announcements were made, there were perhaps more glimmers of hope than you might have expected to see um, in something like that. Um, in particular, uh, unlike some of the leaks that came out ahead of the spending announcements, there was actually money not just for the electorally popular areas like the NHS and schools, but actually money going into areas like adult social care and the courts and prisons, where there is both evidence of the sort that we present in our performance tracker that those services were struggling, and also thought being given to the fact that these systems work as a whole, so more money going into the police needs to be matched by extra money for courts and prisons um, later down the criminal justice um, trajectory. Um, and there were also some positive glimmers of nods to uh, Michael's framework on public value with some discussion in the documents about what, how you might define good performance in some of these departments um, and areas. So it wasn't uh, perhaps quite as gloomy as you might have expected in the circumstances of quite a rushed spending round coming out for just one year. Um, but despite that, I think there were only rays of hope and light of kind of acknowledgement of the challenges of managing public spending that Michael and Martin have talked about. So I think looking ahead to next year's spending review, you'd want to see a lot more uh, attempts to deal with some of these bigger issues in a longer term spending review. Gemma, thanks very much in, 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 indeed for that. So let's, let's pick up some of these issues. Um, I, w I want to, Michael, come back to you. And um, the, the narrative that you described is very much uh, the one that Martin and Gemma have described. If you had uh, the Blair era with a lot of focus on, on targets, and then you had the Cameron lot coming in with a lot of focus on operational efficiency, and then we all surfaced from the first wave of austerity, if you like. And now you're trying to stir in some other things, as, as, as you said, uh, or a consideration of um, how users understand it and engage with what, whatever government goals are, and some sense of whether institutions are, are, are being left in a better, better shape than they were. Would it be fair to say, though, that those two things, well, they certainly feel more like the, the modern world and the kind of engagement that, that governments need to have with people, they're much harder to measure how you've done. Yes, so, I mean, the, there are lots of things in, in, in life and work and public expenditure that are hard to measure, um, and that, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't think about them and think how you can get to a, the best possible judgment using a range of inadequate data on what's happening. So that there are things in the substantial areas of the public value framework where you do the best you can with the data you've got and you reach a judgment. Um, so that, so and you, you, the, the, there are growing numbers of data sources and you never want to rely just on one. But I, I, so I, I think in, in the end, the public value framework will, defend for it, will depend for its impact on 
that combination of improving the quality of data available and then sensible people making judgment. But, uh, but what, one of the things that encourages me about it, um, and actually relates to some of the things that Adrian Brown uh, uh, has been writing about and, and uh, Martin just uh, meant to re refer to, is we, we, I, I insisted, although I must say the Treasury didn't uh, resist it either, that we just made it public. So we, we made the first version public, and then we made the second version public, and if there are first few, which there probably will be future versions, we'll make them public. So what, what I've discovered in the last few months is that lots of people are just taking it and adapting it. So if you look at the Food and Farming Commission report, which is independent of government, was mm. hosted by the RSA, very good look at the future of rural England and how you get food, agriculture, and uh, rural development going together. They've taken the public value framework and adapted it, bringing a stronger environmental theme in, particularly into the stewardship section. I, um, I live in Devon. Um, there's a, 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 an old Tudor mansion being done up. It's called Poltimore House. Don't visit it yet, but it will be good one day. Um, it's a building site at the moment. They are getting funding from Historic England, and Historic England said to them, well, here's the public value framework. Convince us on these four pillars that you've got a good thing here and Historic England have taken it every single proposal they receive now has the four pillars but they've adapted it very substantially simplified it focused it on their work the Dutch Treasury Finance Ministry has looked at the framework came to our international seminar is thinking about how to adapt it for the Dutch Treasury so the, 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 my, my point is that the four pillars seem to make sense to people some of the detail in that we've already refined it for the treasury purposes but it's getting beginning to get a life of its own okay. and you can use it um, at the level of an individual school so bottom up yeah. or from a treasury that's my point so it's it's a way of asking good questions about whether you're getting value for your money okay which we um which, which, no, which, which sounds terrific and yet as, as you described eloquently at the beginning we're in a, a a time when people are very mistrustful of of government and the point i'm reaching for is about accountability um, so you know, how, how do you use this framework to say to the public, look, here's, say, Boris Johnson has given a big lot more money for the police. How do you go to the uh, public and say, you know, how does the public use this framework to say whether or not it's got more value well, the, the, for the money? Yes, yeah, so, so that is obviously, so now you're looking, um, which is my angle from Downing Street, um, looking out from the centre of government and how you how you convince people that you're spending yes, money you, well. So you have yes. people, people out there well, well, saying, the, look, no, so, Michael, so, you're telling yeah. us it's, it's sensible people yeah. in there making judgments, we, but I'm you know really fed up with all these years of, but, of government. How can you persuade me well, with I, your framework I, I think one that of the this is, has, has yeah. given more public yes, value? Well, one of the disappointing things about the, the public expenditure debate in this country and in generally in the world is it's all about numbers of police officers. You referred to that announcement soon. Or, for, exa uh, for example. Or, or, yeah. or, or, or doctors or... Mm. I'm in favour of the 20,000 extra police, but what I really want to know is what they're going to do all day and how, what difference that's going to make for citizens. And that's the point of the framework. So you sh show people what they get for their money on medium-term targets. Are you making progress? Uh, is there a dialogue about how and why you're spending this money? And are you leaving the institutions on which we depend better than you found them? We have a big problem, don't we, in this country, and it's also true around the world, that institutions, not just government ones, Catholic Church, Etc. Etc. are under threat. So institutions need to demonstrate how they're strengthening themselves. The permanent secretaries in Whitehall responded very, very positively to that strand because they see, particularly during uncertain political times, they have a res responsibility for building the, the resilience <coughs> and adaptability and 
a strength of their department and its relationships with the services they run. So to try and deploy <coughs> this framework, I mean, to take the yeah. police example, you say these 20,000 police, so it doesn't sound as if it really fits any of your criteria very well. It doesn't yes. say what these 20,000 police are supposed to do. No, no so you... Does, so it doesn't say, um, it doesn't give you a way to say, are they being used efficiently no, what or you, not? doesn't say how users you, so are engaging with them or... So you say we're going yeah. to have 20,000 more police, so yeah. that, that is basically part of pillar two. Here's, some, here's, yeah. here's a big input that's going to come over the next three or four years. And then the Home Office uh, and indeed police uh, chiefs should be saying, well, what, what do we expect to get yeah. as we move from 101,000 to 130 odd thousand police? Uh, uh, how, what, what dialogue do we want with the public? The police are very keen on uh, responding to the public demands. If you look at the um, police superintendents conference last week, the chief of the superintendents association was saying, we know what the public are demanding at the moment, we're unable to deliver it, but they're in dialogue with the public about that. And then, and then the fourth pillar would be, are we building the resilience of the police force for the future? So one thing to think about on the 20,000, for example, that would come up is, is this an opportunity to increase the diversity of the police force so that it more, more closely respects the population of the country? Mm. There's been some progress since the mm. 90s when that became an issue, but, but they could make more. So mm. it would put all those questions on the agenda, and mm. it should, and the Home Office hopefully will, will be doing that right now. And the, the, let's, let's bring the sort of politicians into, into this vision that we're sketching out, because um, what you're describing is a dialogue, really, between civil servants and, and, and police, and, and you, you know this comes back to Boris Johnson's Yeah, no, but, but the politicians should be leading that, that. They should uh, be absolutely okay. part of that. Yeah. What I'm reaching for is how, how do you hold whoever makes the uh, announcement uh, to, to account in this kind of thing? Martin, how, how did you treat accountability in this, in this report? Right, well, um, one, one uh, weakness in our system starts at the very top, um, and, and I guess there is a topicality about this today, and that is the accountability of ministers to parliament. Mm. And um, uh, historians will know that, um, in very crude terms, um, the history, a large part of the history of parliament was... Um, that representatives of the people should have some kind of control over how the king spends his money. It's a very important part of it. And unfortunately, that aspect of Parliament's um, role has somewhat withered, and the allocation uh, of resources to the government by Parliament has become far too much a formality. Um, one strand, therefore, in our report is to urge that uh, the House of Commons takes a much more uh, direct interest in holding ministers to account for the quality of their plans and decisions mm. about um, uh, resources, not least through um, setting up a, a special um, committee to look at spending plans of a kind which uh, exists in many other countries, supported by uh, a, 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 a parliamentary uh, staff um, uh, with sufficient numbers and expertise to mm. advise the members on the kinds of questions mm. they ought to be asking ministers. And the Commons Procedure Committee has yes. put together some plans for this kind of thing. How, yeah. how, how would that work? Can I just yeah, go ask, on, ask yeah. a supplementary question? To yeah. and how would that relate to the Public Accounts Committee and the, and the NAO? Um, it, would, <clears throat> it would be looking at the quality of plans. Right. So it's, in economics language, ex-ante scrutiny of what right. ministers are proposing to do. So... Uh, looking at our police example, it would be 
Uh, so Prime Minister gets up, yeah. makes an announcement yeah. about the police. What, yeah. what does this, this new well, uh, committee then do? Once it has landed in the Home Office and elsewhere, it gets the Home Secretary in and it asks the Home Secretary and Home Office officials uh, to uh, explain uh, how they're going to turn the extra uh, funding uh, not just into more bodies, but more bodies doing useful stuff, as you said, uh, uh, Michael. Um, it might also uh, uh, call in witnesses from uh, the police and other people with an interest in uh, crime and policing uh, to uh, provide some sort of cross-check against uh, what was going on. Um, this this uh, uh, parliamentary budget office, or whatever, that's what it's called in Ireland, um, uh, uh, would be providing the members of the committee with uh, facts and figures uh, uh, much the same way as the NAO provides the DAC with a basic starting point for its examinations of what happens uh, uh, after the event. But of course, while, while the NAO and the PAC do an enormous amount of, uh, uh, of, of very great work, um, the, as, as we see from frustrated uh, chairs of the PAC committee saying we've been through project management failures again and again and again it, it's, 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 it, the PAC can only point out where things have gone wrong after the event and the purpose of a committee like this would be to uh, put ministers on their mettle as to whether their plans are um, sound in, in, in advance. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that this isn't top of what the Commons is thinking about at the moment. But um, it doesn't what exist. do you? But, no, but the, the procedure committee, having said that, the procedure committee did, um, you, you know, did kick this about quite a bit. How much um, a sort of impetus do you, do you think there is for this in the, in the Commons? Well, I think the, 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 the very fact that the procedure committee um, have been carrying on with this inquiry in the middle of everything else that's been mm. going on, and they have. They have been in the thick of um, arguments about uh, uh, the, 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 the different ways that uh, the Speaker has been uh, 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 arranging parliamentary procedure and all that kind mm. of thing. They could very easily have been working on that full time. They actually uh, 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 devoted time to this. Um, quite a number of um, members put in uh, written submissions and came and gave them uh, oral evidence. They had a pretty thorough discussion with Liz Truss when she was uh, uh, Chief Secretary about it. And um, uh, they, they went through quite a lot of hoops uh, to do with timing and procedure to get a report um, out there. Now, um, that's, you know, th th of course uh, MPs are heavily distracted at the moment, but I think, I think that's a good platform um, uh, moving forward uh, if and when the current confusion clears um, mm. for uh, thinking about Parliament. Um, back, in, uh, back in the summer, I spent some time in Dublin um, talking to uh, the, 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 the structure that has been set up there. And um, I, I think that, that back in 2016, when this got going, uh, it's probably fair to say there was quite a lot of scepticism about whether parliamentarians could be um, interested in this stuff. Actually, what I was told is that um, the members of their budget committee have got the bit between their teeth um, and uh, are not just uh, as a 
committee for the whole of uh, public spending looking at some quite interesting issues like how the government uh, there is spending money on climate adaptation or mm -hmm. where public money goes in terms of gender uh, issues but are also putting the individual departmental committees on their mettle mm. to ask more detailed questions about their equivalent of the Home Office or DEFRA mm. or whatever. Mm. No, thanks for that. And uh, Jim, uh, just um, from your work on Performance Tracker and your, the enormous analysis you've brought to that, um, and thank you for that, uh, coming to the Institute just over a year ago, what do you feel government does well and badly about this and, and, and the kind of what's the quality of information like that it has to manage its own performance? Yes, so, I mean I guess this relates to the importance of data within Michael's framework and beyond that and certainly looking across the nine areas of public services that we track in the performance tracker there is a very mixed picture of the extent to which relevant data is available to understand yeah. the impact of public spending and so the government doesn't even have what we would think was the bare minimum of, of, of data to manage its own performance. What, what are the kind yes. of areas you're so talking about? So there are important areas. So across the areas we look at in performance tracker, there are noticeable weaknesses, particularly in local government delivered services. Um, that is partly because data is collected in somewhat disparate ways, ways across the country, so it's hard to understand how performance varies across different areas. There are also big gaps in areas like adult social care where Huge, much of the provision is delivered by private providers and we have very little idea of what resources they use or the cost of delivering those services to anybody. So in something like Michael's public value framework, it would be very hard to know how you would drive those marginal gains yeah. in getting better value for the public money that is spent on adult social care because we have so little information on what is actually done beyond large chunks of money being handed over to private providers in that sector. Um, at the other end of the scale, there are some services, and I probably put acute hospital care in this category, where we have a huge amount of information mm. about everything that's done there. There's every episode of someone's hospital experience and what's happened to them. On the other hand, for primary care and GP services, we have very little information about what GPs actually do with their time, how many people go to see their GP, what services they receive. I remember one so, memorable morning at the IFG when a quite young, very bright researcher rushed in and said, do you know this country doesn't even know how many GPs there are? <laughs> Some investigation followed. But, but, yeah. So it's a very mixed picture, and that's what we've been trying to do with Performance Tracker, is trying to think, okay, if we wanted to map out what we think we get for the money that's going in and how the demand for some of these services has changed and whether that's been met or not. Mm. Actually, for some of the services, it's very hard um, to say whether that has been the case. Great. Now, I'm going to come to questions in just a second, but I'd love to hear from the three of you how you think a corbyn McDonnell government uh, might change this kind of debate. What, what, what is it? Because, you know, we've, we've described, and, and Mike, I'm going back to you, the kind of narrative you gave right at the beginning. Um, you, I'm not going to call them fashions for government or management of spending, but they were very clearly um, associated with different sort of styles of government. And, you know, is, is this all, um, do you think it could all be about to change again? Would the, uh, Corbyn and McDonnell have such an antipathy to targets, for example, that one whole pillar of your framework might be knocked away? I actually have no idea what they think about the public value framework or how they would um, manage public money. Um, what we know from what they've said is that they'll spend a lot more of it. Yep. 
uh, and there will be a grow, growing deficit. So that, that, that's what we know, but we, yeah. we don't really know how they're going to manage public money. We have a sense that they don't warm to targets. I think that's... It's I, 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 I don't know. And we know from, indeed, the <coughs> report we launched this morning uh, on outsourcing that they're not keen on outsourcing. Yeah, we, well, yeah they want to bring a lot of stuff in-house uh, yeah. uh, and nationalise a lot of stuff and spend money on things that they haven't got money to spend on it. But we don't know how they're going to control the, 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 the output they get for this big increase in the deficit. <coughs> any, any thoughts on that before we go to questions? We know from uh, John McDonnell's uh, letter to <coughs> Tom Scholar, Permanent <coughs> Secretary of the Treasury, earlier in this uh, earlier this year, that um, John McDonnell is talking about public service agreements. Um, surprisingly, retro maybe, um, talking about uh, three or even five-year spending reviews, um, and um, separately, they they have also talked about needing to overhaul the Green Book, which is the Treasury's methodology for um, appraising mm. the economic value mm. of projects. Quite what they mean by that isn't clear at the moment, and, and um, uh, part of me thinks a certain amount of eerie dragons about that, but um, fine. I mean, at least the important thing about talking about the Green Book shows that they're actually seriously interested in the, the wiring, um, and they realise that you've got to uh, come in with more than uh, an intention and plan to spend a lot more money. You have to think about um, uh, 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 some of these questions. Only time will tell um, uh, 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 what they want to do in terms of specific methodologies. But there have been um, groups and think tanks connected with the Labour Party um, thinking about these issues as well with involvement from people in the Treasury team. So uh, I, 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 think, I think it's not a completely blank slate, though um, what exactly they mean by it remains to be seen. Mm. One thing I would say, though, and I think this now um, applies to um, uh, uh, Conservative governments as well, is um, we do seem to have swung away from austerity towards uh, a bipartisan consensus that we need to spend more money. Um, and unless this is too much of a jaundiced old Treasury official observation, I think that does pose very significant risks for both parties because um, however much money there is, there will never be enough to satisfy all the demands and all the ideas that spending ministers will have. And in fact, when you're running a looser ship fiscally, it's more difficult for Treasury ministers to manage that process yeah. than yeah. when, as George Osborne had, you've got a very strong narrative about absolutely everything needing to be uh, uh, screwed down. Mm. So mm. Um, I think that's, that's going to be a, a big challenge for John McDonnell if he becomes Chancellor, but it's probably a big challenge for Sajid Javid if he's Chancellor presiding over a spending review next year as well. No, a very, a very good point. And you're absolutely right to raise the Green, green Book as, as well. And it seems to be one of the questions raised by McDonald's comments is, is that he may mean, let's set aside some of the constraints that the Green Book represents uh, if we want to pour more money in one to one region of the country or one industry or something. But as you said, to be, to be found out. Um, I was just going to add that Assuming we're not in a world where there's a huge landslide Labour victory at the next election that could be an important political economy dynamic, history suggests that Conservative governments have actually always found it easier to convince the public that they manage public money well, and Labour governments have found it harder to convince the public of that, and therefore a Labour government may 
find there is greater value or still good value yeah. to them yeah. of demonstrating that they are spending public money well, <laughs> even if they do want to have slightly different targets for what they mean yeah. by spending money well in revising yeah. the Green Book, as you said. Let's have some questions. Thank you. Loads. Right. Um, all right, let me take a bunch over here and then I'll, uh, I'll come to you. Um, uh, let's t take the two, two here and then I'll come to the front. Right. The second, second row. Yeah, can we have a mic here, Freddie? Thanks. Here and next to you. Um, thank you very much for this. Um, Vicky Price, uh, in fact, I used to be uh, in charge of one of those PSAs under government, under the Labour government. And I think one of the things that I wanted to ask is that it isn't just that you, we were able, or one is able through the PSAs, to, to at least get some outcome expectations that you can, you can look at and see whether we're one is achieving them. Uh, but it actually encourages this cooperation across, across departments. And that was the real thing, which was completely lost uh, when we had the coalition government, when Cameron decided not to give, uh, you know, to allow the ministries to do what they liked. So, so the outcomes inevitably would be worse, in my view, because you basically don't have uh, the type of cooperation across. So, so any public value uh, spending review that may be happening, uh, we'll need to take that into account. So having departmental expectations is a disaster because you just put one department against another very often. So that's the first question. Do you, do you agree that this is, this is the case? Um, which, which, is, which is obviously, uh, obviously the sort of great concern about, it, about uh, whatever is, is, uh, is happening now. Uh, and actually, I'll, st I'll stop there because right. that is enough of a worry, frankly. Okay, and then can we take the one next to you at the same time? Thanks. You, yes, thanks. <coughs> Uh, Matthew Trimming. Um, just building on Vicky's uh, point, um, I was <coughs> struck by Michael's comment about cross-cutting sort of increasingly being the norm as he looks mm. around the world. Um, and he also spoke a lot about the work of the UK in terms of influencing um, public value thinking around the world. So we're clearly innovating there. We don't appear to be innovating so much in terms of the cross-cutting piece. I mean, yeah. one point in terms of Martin's uh, work is, you know, everybody seems to think that because John Manzoni came up with a single departmental plan, oh, that's just a cabinet office thing, don't you know? You know, public value, that's a treasury thing, don't you know? You had Mark Sidwell saying, oh, well, we're taking your approach to, to Brexit. We thought, you know, Dexu, number 10, and the cabinet office might even work together. You know, what an innovation that is. So my question really is, what, from your experience, are the kind of cultural opportunities to drive change that allows people, people to behave in, in a cross-cutting way? Thank you. Yes, let, let, let's take that double-sided challenge to the departmental <coughs> structure. Well, on, on um, Vicky's question, I, I, um, I agree with her observation about, about PSAs. Designed rightly, they could really encourage interdepartmental collaboration, mm. um, and that is, that is a key point. Um, and as I said earlier, the, when I look around the world, cross-cutting is neither norm. We, we probably need different language, actually. Um, but but the, the public value framework itself is explicitly designed to be applicable either to, I mean, it could be a strand within a department, or you could take a, a whole chunk of government expenditure that cut across a whole series of different departments and would bring uh, people together on that. Or as I mentioned earlier, could relate to a, a geographic uh, a place, and you look at the value you're getting for different budgets. So I, 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 I just simply endorse Vicky's observation. On Matthew's question, one, I, I think you're right, basically, that everything I, you said I, I agreed with. Um, I just want to add one point, which is Mark Sedwell is really 
pushing quite hard this idea, he calls it fusion, which is taking some themes that cut across a, a very wide range of different departments and trying to build thinking, not just about budgets, but implementation, delivery around those. Now that's, it's a good word, it's an early start of thinking, and if that's the kind of thing that if we did it really well as a country, we could be you know, we, we, we could be world leading on that. But at the moment, I think you're right. And what I've seen in the, the Trudeau government is some very, very good cross-cutting thinking. And one, one thing they use, well, which relates a bit to what Vicky just said, is the use of the, in that case, the Prime Minister's time on four, basically, really important, as he sees it, cross-cutting themes has been very, very powerful. So indigenous affairs, for example, or... Um, Equality, uh, um, diversity and inclusion in the uniformed services, things, things like that where, where you cut across a whole series and you use the Prime Minister's authority and power and influence and time to drive change at that level. Uh, and remember, Canada is a very federal country, so a lot of it is bottom-up. It's, it's cities and regions and, uh, and, uh, and obviously the provinces. But nevertheless, they, they've, they've actually shown some, some good innovative work in that area, as has New South Wales in Australia. <clears throat> oh, do, you, do you have thoughts on that? Yes. Um, well, I, I very much agree with Michael that Canada uh, is a good example. And uh, with a commendable commitment to transparency, you can look it all up online, see, uh, see how the Prime Minister is actually setting these cross-government uh, priorities and how departments are performing against them. Um, I, I, I think the problem we have in this country currently is an imbalance between single departmental plans, and the, the word single is important there, and the collective. Um, believe it or not, I may be the only person in the room who knows this, there is something called the government's plan, which is a seven-point plan for what the government uh, is supposed G, to capital do. Capital G, capital P. Uh, well, no, it's actually okay. lowercase, sure. uh, which yeah. is sort of a, a, a certain diffidence about it. Yeah. And one of the things we're saying in the report is um, that uh, whether you call it um, the government's plan, lowercase or uppercase, or something else, um, or it's even a cruder to-do list, um, uh, the centre of government, and in, in practical political terms, this will almost certainly will have to be a dialogue between uh, any Prime Minister and any Chancellor. They have uh, an agreed and fairly short list of things they want to do, and almost inevitably in today's society and government, those things will involve more than one uh, department um, <coughs> trying to drive forward uh, at the same time. And in the report, we, we uh, advocate that um, the government should have that. Uh, degree of clarity about our priorities. Uh, picking up your point, Vicky, um, when I had uh, finished being a Treasury spending team leader, another part of my misspent um, past was going off to um, try and uh, improve social and economic conditions in low-income parts of South London. And actually, the performance framework that um, uh, was in place at the time, that was towards the end of the Blair period, um, did I... I, I'm sure, drive different behaviour by people at the front line. Um, and we did, we, we, you know, we did have uh, uh, the council, the employment service, the health service sitting down together in this estate um, because um, the performance framework was a set of linked 
targets for different departments about how they were going to improve public service performance and outcomes in low-income neighbourhoods. All right, let's, go, let's come to the two in the front. I've still, I've still got questions about what that does about, uh, to accountability of the minister turning up in front of parliament, but we can come back to that, uh, the two right. here. Um, Joan Monroe, I do research on uh, leadership for innovation in local government. Um, and I'm afraid my question's around um, the cross-cutting theme as well. Um, well but I, I, what I was feeling was um, wondering whether the public value framework, which I'm afraid I haven't read, could be... Um, amended and improved, enhanced a way to kind of um, uh, increase the emphasis on the cross-cutting approach. For example, you talked about uh, is the money being spent in the right way? Well, clearly part of that is, has analysis been done about what, what the causes of things? If you're giving lots of money for more police, would it be better to sort of save children from being excluded from school or whatever? Yeah. Um, and 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 how are you thinking about the user and the taxpayer? What about how are you thinking about the person delivering it as well and their kind of views on what yeah. works and so on, sort of linking back to what Martin was saying? And if you're thinking about the sort of um, the long-term health of the institution... Okay, excuse uh, me, can you speak into the microphone? Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, anyway, just, just generally, right. sort of whether the framework could be much more used to incentivize cross-cutting, because certainly from the local government point of view, very frustrated with lots of different initiatives that don't join up. Yeah. Thanks very much. And, and next to you as well, if that's all right. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, Martin Atkins, uh, Clerk of the House Commons Procedure Committee. Um, Great. And first of all, thank you very much to Martin for summarising um, our committee's report far better than I could um, and giving a plug for it. Um, an observation, first of all, in that the spending review was in some ways a parliament, slight parliamentary non-event or parliamentary sideshow because the House of Commons had the previous day decided it actually wanted to use that day to do something else, mm. which was to pass quite an important bill through all stages in one day. Um, so there are questions of prior priorities there and ideally we might have had a, a day's debate on a spending review. Um, but secondly, uh, we have actually, seems to be, a slight opportunity here in that this is the first draft of the government's main estimates for next year. And I wondered if uh, Martin in particular and others had thoughts about how select committees could use this time between now and April 2020 when the estimates are presented for getting ahead of the game and asking good questions of government as to what they were going to put in those estimates. Thank you very much indeed. Martin and Gemma, do you, do you want to come in on that? And then we just... Uh, Michael, perhaps touch back on the cross-cutting cut, cross and welcome to you. Yes, yes. Um, well, um, thank you, Martin. Uh, I, 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 one of the striking things about the UK system is that the spending review is the main event through which government decides on um, its top level of spending allocations. Um, but it doesn't have to be approved by Parliament. And uh, as you say, there, there's normally a bit more debate than there was this year, but there isn't a whole load of debate about it. Um, and um, it's patchy at best engagement by departmental committees in it. So I, I think we in the Institute would say it would be an extremely good idea for uh, departmental committees to take what's in the Treasury document about their department and start asking questions 
uh, about uh, what ministers are planning to do to turn uh, extra money, uh, some of them have got substantial amounts of extra money, uh, <coughs> sorts of questions Michael was raising earlier, into impact, or indeed uh, with some of the less favoured departments, how are they going to manage the consequences of budgets which continue to be quite uh, constrained? So um, okay. uh, very supportive of that, yes. And Gemma, any, any thoughts about how you'd like to see Parliament pick up these, these kind of challenges? Yes, so it is something we've been giving a bit of thought to as well, thinking about the current state in Parliament. And it's something that we had been thinking through as well is the difference between these spending announcements on departmental spending, where, as you say, the government can wait quite a long time until next April before having to put anything before Parliament, and then there's only a limited amount of uh, objections and wait, the ways that MPs can object to them, versus if they wanted to make changes to tax policy where those would be presented in a budget and then there's a reasonably tight time scale in which those budget resolutions and finance bill have to be debated in Parliament. Mm. Um, I, I like your characterisation of this as an opportunity for um, the select committees to use this time to get on top of the details and uh, be ready for April. Um, as Martin says, I hope they do do that. Um, but uh, so far, and I guess that's the, the debate around the budget um, committee, there has tended to be relatively little scrutiny by um, departmental committees of those forward-looking spending plans. Great, thanks. On, on, on um, the points that Jan made about the, from, from a local government perspective, all of those things are actually dealt with, it, and, and I, I really appreciate your comments on that, if you want to give me any, when you look at the review, when you look at the public value framework itself, and, and the answer to your question, will it be adapted? Yes, and anybody can adapt it, I mean, it's public, so you, and the, the, the Treasury will adapt it for its own purposes over time. There's no reason why an individual local government or a local government association couldn't take it and adapt it and say, we can make this better and then use it for itself. But it does, it does raise all the questions that you've mentioned. And on, if I just, on my wish list, um, picking up this Martin's point, um, I think, I, having appeared before select committees and indeed, uh, on one occasion before a Senate committee in the US, the um, uh, when I went to the Senate committee, it was chaired by Mark Warner, the senator from one of the senators from, from Virginia. And at the end, he said, "Do you want to come and meet my staff?" And you know, we, we had a nice time in the committee. But his staff were like fifteen or twenty people, and the, the, it's, it's the, the, the one thing that would really empower parliamentary committees mm. is is a bigger staff to do some really serious analysis of the estimates and get into it because. Mm. Um, the select committees, you know, they vary, obviously. They, 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 when they do a good job, they often haven't had the, the capacity to really dig into these things. And um, Whereas you as, uh, not, not, not in my case as a minister, but if you're a minister, or, or in my case as a public servant, you've got the capacity of the department to help you prepare for that meeting, which I always take very seriously. But they, if, they, if you just double or treble the size of the staff of the parliamentary committees, that would be a huge step forward for this, the, 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 the whole dialogue that you two Martins are having. Mm. <coughs> Let's come here to, to the front. Will you forgive me? I'm, I'm going to take this next question alone, because I, which you've earned, Adrian Brown of the Centre, the public impact by, by virtue of your exposition today on, on, on Twitter in response to this, right. and, and also writing elsewhere. No, no, in all seriousness, because it seems to me if there is a battle of ideas over this, it's in the kind of challenge that you're putting down, which I strongly suspect the panel doesn't agree with, but I can't speak for Gemma. Actually, has not been intimately involved. But I'd very much like you to air your your well, views about what you think. I've about never it. had a question so heavily trailed. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can I can only disappoint now, I fear. 
or worse disagree. Um, I suppose, uh, I suppose if I was to put my question as simply as possible, it would be, should the Treasury be more humble? Right? Should we have more humility? And the, the thinking behind this question is that, as Michael said right at the beginning of this discussion, public expenditure is vast and covers an extraordinary array of areas, 40% of the economy. Some of those areas are extremely amenable to uh, Treasury, understanding the performance, getting data on how things are going, having conversations about cause and effect, and it's a more uh, sort of linear, logical way of looking at, at public expenditure and driving performance down the line. But there are very many other areas, which, which Michael's also mentioned as well, which are far more complex. Uh, and they happen to be the areas where we've made little or no progress, actually, in, in recent years. So things like homelessness uh, would spring to mind, which are not just, which are hard to even define what the problem is because it intersects with uh, drug abuse and um, mental health issues and all sorts of other issues that we, we, we find very hard to bound in any, in any normal way. So in what sense does Treasury manage performance in a complex area of, of public service. And if, if, we were, if we were more humble, perhaps we would say, actually, you know what? Not very much. And then the Not very much and shouldn't. And shouldn't, and shouldn't attempt to, is, is, because is in a sense, we're fooling ourselves by imagining we can manage uh, a complex system like that in any normal sense of the word manage. So what should we do then? And, uh, I, and I won't go into straight on speech about it, but I would suggest, you know, we have alternative uh, levels of accountability which we can look to. So we can push the accountability closer to the problem, uh, and this is you know, the argument for place and for reinvigorating some of our other accountability mechanisms that we have that don't necessarily require right up to the top of the system would be the first point. And the second point would be to say, you know, Treasury should, rather than trying to manage the outcomes, manage the performance, should be asking some of the questions which I think Michael asked, which are, how can we improve the health of the system so that it is more likely to produce the outcomes which, mean, which means you're not actually trying to manage the outcomes directly. You're instead saying, how can we improve information flows in the system? How can we improve capacity of the system to learn? How can we encourage the behaviors that will make the system as healthy as possible? Which is a different, actually a quite a different mindset, possibly for quite large areas of public service. So shouldn't Treasury be more humble? Go ahead. Um, well, Actually, one of the arguments we make in the public value report that, that, that introduces the public value framework is, yes, the Treasury should be more humble and much more thoughtful about the way it builds relationships. But being more humble doesn't mean being more soft. That, so, so you've got to be humble and tough. And that's a hard combination to get for any human being, but that's what the Treasury needs to do. So I'm, I'm in favour of great humility. And I also agree that in, in areas where you can't measure the outcome, you can strengthen the processes, which is what, what the fourth pillar of the framework is about. On homelessness itself, we do actually know how to solve that, because we did do it in between 1997 and, and 2000. We solved it. Dame Louise Casey could be brought back. She'd fix it in two years. She, she, mm. she did a fantastic job with that. Um, Stephen Aldridge is here from the, the, from the relevant department. So, so we do, we, I mean, it's, it's got complex causes, but actually um, finding a way to do that would, could, could and should be done. It's doable. Right, uh, uh, Martin, do you want, you want a, a quick um, riposte well, and then I'll... Um, 
I, I, yes, I think the Treasury should be more um, humble in some respects, um, and our report um, suggests they shouldn't try and do everything. Um, however, unless I'm just too uh, dyed in the wool old Treasury official, um, there are two things. The first is um, governments around the world can take a different view about how much um, uh, spending and policy gets uh, set at national level and they could, for example, in this country decide that uh, local government should have both more uh, revenue raising and spending power and more agency and uh, they, central government, can, can, can concern themselves with um, certain uh, uh, issues. But um, you still do, do have to have a national authority, a finance ministry or something that is making some basic decisions about uh, uh, affordability, who gets to decide what money gets spent on what. The other is a political reality, which I can't uh, see any way out of, which is that um, national politicians will form a view about what the public want, uh, and they will win elections with a programme. And uh, uh, the, the, at a national level, there will, um, I hope, not on too many issues, and I would urge politicians to make sure their to-do lists are manageable, like uh, Mr Trudeau's are in Canada, not unmanageable, like some of the ones we've seen here, but there will be that to-do list. Um, and therefore, uh, therefore um, government, with the Treasury uh, very much involved in this, will have to take an interest in some of these issues. What I would say, though, is that um, from my own direct personal experience of thinking about uh, policies like uh, vulnerable young people uh, at national level and working on these things at local level, that there needs to be humility, uh, not just the Treasury, but other parts of central government, about um, exactly what you do, not least because um, getting young people into work is a very different challenge in West London, I know, from uh, South Yorkshire. Um, but that doesn't mean that the national government can or should just get out of the way because I think it can still hold places accountable for outcomes. You know, are there more young people engaged in the labour market in your area? Um, and if they're not, what have you been doing with this extra money we've been giving you on this, uh, on this front? Uh, we're going to have to continue this uh, even off stage. Let me take a final few questions. And there's one question I want to ask Gemma. Right, I've got one here in the front and one at the back. Let's take those two together. Oh, yeah, Alex uh, so Can we start? Sorry, can we start here in the front as of order, order of um, just hands up first, and then I'll come right to you. Thank you, Bob. Um, Would the you late, like to say who you the, are, please? Oh, sorry, Leslie and Nash, Cabinet Office. Um, the late Sir Jeremy Hayward would often say in this room, if you want to affect change in government, concentrate on one or two things and push really hard on those. <laughs> it strikes me that the public value framework, coupled with Mark Sedwell's fusion approach, are two things that can really drive meaningful change. But the barrier that Gemma alluded to is data, the dearth of data. Within, within the civil service, we lack confidence in the data. The public lack confidence in the data. It's not sexy. It doesn't grab ministerial um, headlines. We talked about how to get political drive. How do we get data to be a political priority? Thank you very much. And towards the back. 
Um, that's funny. I was about to ask exactly the same question. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, okay. I've, been, I've been researching uh, or scoping, starting to scope the idea of data gaps and governments need, different governments need the data and how they're trying to bridge the gaps. So, yeah, this is exactly what I was going to ask. Okay, great. Well, let's look, let's take that one and go to Martin, Gemma, Michael. Um, uh, and um, no, I'm going to spare Gemma the question. It was all about climate change, and I'll save it for another panel. Uh, so let's do it, because this one, this one is important, or this pair of things uh, is important as an essential IFG theme. So um, Martin, Gemma, Michael. Well, how do we get uh, data to be a political priority? We get politicians to insist on it. And um, as I mentioned earlier, there are some examples of current or recent secretaries of state we understand from officials who have been um, asking their civil servants to show them what is actually happening and instead of uh, those traditional Whitehall narratives about how many committee meetings we've been to uh, and how many consultation documents we've published are asking their civil servants show me what impact policies in my department are having and I think uh, you know, so it behoves it, it all of us uh, to the extent we have any sway over politicians to uh, say to them that uh, we uh, want them to take an interest in data. I actually believe, um, and Stephen Aldridge uh, uh, might be someone to come in on this, but I actually believe there is a huge amount of data um, sitting there in the system. It requires customers to ask uh, the custodians of it to process it to answer the questions they want answered. And then at the very least we will, uh, we will see where we actually do know stuff and just haven't bothered to ask versus uh, there's actually a data gap. And, and then as you said earlier, Michael, you put in place a plan to address it. So I think part of the way to convince politicians that they want better data is to make them understand how having that better data contributes to the outcomes that they want to achieve and can help them to demonstrate that they are doing the things that they are saying to the public they are doing. I mean, not, not in quite the same space as we've been talking about here, but the Department for International Trade is really quite an interesting example at the moment, where it was a new department. Uh, Liam Fox, as the first Secretary of State, put a big push into improving trade data for the UK to help ministers understand what trade does the UK currently uh, do and where are the op opportunities for improving UK exports by making trade deals with the rest of the world and acknowledging that there was a huge gap in the quality of trade data, particularly services trade data, which is very important to the UK. So I think that's quite an interesting example where actually a Secretary of State wanting to have that to back up and prioritise his own activities on a trade agenda. Um, actually put a really big push behind trade data and there's been a lot of work going on between DIT and the ONS to try and improve those areas. Um, two good questions about data. On, on, um, if I had to summarise how I'd encourage politicians to, to be more excited about data, although many of them in my experience genuinely are, one is think carefully about how you present it to them. They're busy people with a lot on their mind. They're not, they're not statisticians. They don't necessarily understand the scatter graph or um, uh, you know, the Z scores and things. You've got to present it well, but not lose the integrity in simplifying the presentation. So, you, so present it well um, and, uh, and then use it effectively so it makes a difference. We, we, uh, when I was working in Punjab, Pakistan, we, we started mapping where down to the to very local GPS point every 
um, child vaccination uh, as it was happening. And the, the, we, we massively increased the number of vaccinations simply because we were tracking them. But when we showed the maps to the chief minister in a, in a stock take, he said, I'm going to sleep with this map under my pillow because now I know where all the problems are and where the problems aren't and I can solve them. It just transformed his ability to do the job. The, the second thing I'd say is, uh, which Leslie made the point, I, 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 I think you're, you're, you're right, your, your big observation was right, and data is really important. In Canada, um, Justin Trudeau has reviewed his big cross-cutting programs um, regularly, uh, has reviewed his big cross-cutting programs regularly, and he always has the chief statistician in the stock take. There's a guy called Anil Aurora. He's a brilliant statistician. He runs Stats Canada, which is... And the and that that does two things. One, it makes sure that all the people are producing data produce it to a standard that Anil would expect, as well as the Prime Minister. And secondly, it's a, an assurance of the integrity of the data because he's the chief statistician, and he's very very good. Um, uh, and then thirdly, uh, I don't know if there's going to be people hanging around over drinks out here, there but, are. but there the, are. well, the, there are going to be drinks. So people <laughs> hang around. There's another, the, another matter. The <laughs> there's a lot of drink. Yeah, the background is Tony O'Connor, who's drawn more graphs for a prime minister than anybody in history. He mm. is the expert and the master of presenting data brilliantly to prime ministers. So uh, you could talk to Tony over drinks. Yeah. All right, let, let me just add my own, my own thoughts on that, which I think, I think I mean these very febrile times we're in are actually good for one thing, which is a parliament getting a sense of its own voice and demanding data and demanding data for accountability and demanding data from government and, um, and being more open with its exasperation about data being presented in different forms in different years because a new minister has decided to rebadge something as, as the green economy and it's not possible to compare with the previous year. I mean, the, 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 you know, the quality of data is, it seems the government data is a shocker, certainly externally and even, even internally. And it's something that we at the, at the IFG are going to hammer away at. We absolutely hope that other, well, uh, that watchdogs like the NAO uh, keep going at that. And um, not to take you into the internal workings of the IFG too much, but there, there is rarely a week that doesn't go by with someone lamenting the, uh, demise of the audit commission and so the lack of <laughs> the lack of scrutiny of uh, the finances of local government which does feel like a problem waiting to happen anyway on that cheery note uh, delighted to have you all here uh, martin thanks for this excellent report martin Gemma, michael barber thank you very much indeed for coming thanks for your questions <laughs>